Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris SAGE Institute colleague, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we are honored. We are talking with Ann Janzer, the author of Subscription Marketing. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's, I'm, it's going great, Ron. I mean, who would have thought that the nation would come together so quickly um, uh, on Wednesday. And of course, I'm not talking about the inauguration. I'm talking about over the Bernie memes that we all seem to have united around. <laughs> Bernie memes. I just saw him with the one, the guys from the great white North in Canada. Oh, Remember the, the, that SCTV sketch? No, I think that Bernie has been, is true to his socialist word, been a burden on productivity now. Cause like, yes, it's, it's just it's all everybody's doing the last two days. That's all we've done. So it's a, a really amazing. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring Ann on. Uh, Ann Janzer is an award-winning author, armchair cognitive science geek. I love that. Nonfiction author, coach, marketing practitioner, and blogger. She's on a mission to help people spread important ideas through writing. She's the author of many books on writing, Get the Word Out, Writing to be Understood, the writing, the writer's process, the workplace writer's process, and of course, subscription marketing, which is now in its third edition, which we'll talk to her about. Her books have won numerous awards, and they've been translated into Japanese, Korean, Russian uh, language editions. So that's great news. And welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Hey, heck, thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to have this conversation. So before we get into subscription, which is why we brought you on, I want to ask you, what's it like to teach writing to business professionals? Have you been able to remove their jargon? Yeah, <laughs> they do love their jargon, right? They do. Um, and, and part of the problem, you know, with business professionals, you know, is they're surrounded by their colleagues and, and jargon is like an in, it's a way of signaling membership, right? It's, it's convenient, first of all, sometimes necessary, but it's also a membership thing. So the main thing that I do when I work with business writers is I try to get them to think about their, their true audience, who is not the people that are all around them every day. It's someone entirely different. Um, so yeah, that's, that's always a challenge, right? Always right. a challenge. It is. Yeah. yeah um, the economist has uh, this columnist. I just love Bartleby. Yeah. And he writes and he constantly rails on the terrible language and writing skills of most business people. They write memos that are indecipherable and just full of jargon. And he just really takes them to task. I just love the guy. Um, <laughs> so Anne, what motivated you to write a book on subscription marketing? Yeah, so that book was born uh, almost out of a sense of frustration, actually, because I couldn't get marketing professionals to pay attention to what was happening. Now, I've been a freelance marketing consultant for a long time, and one of the clients I worked with is a company called Service Source, and they were all talking about uh, subscriptions and the revenue impact and the financial impact. And I was doing a lot of blogging for them. I thought, you know, they're not talking about the marketing impact. And as I thought about it, I realized that as the revenue shifted, marketers, if they wanted to be relevant, needed to follow the revenues. 
So whenever people would hire me to do lead gen, I'd say, you know, we could also do something for your current customer base uh, that would, you know, really cement their sense of value that they're getting. And they'd be like, oh yeah, no, we don't have time for that. We just need new customers. So it was, it was born out of a sense of frustration because I felt everyone's like, no, this is how we always do marketing. We just go get new leads. That's our job. Um, uh, so hence the, the book. Um, I thought it would land with a audience of traditional marketers and large corporations. And in fact, um, it didn't necessarily land with them right away. It landed with a bunch of other people like customer success professionals and startups and entrepreneurs and all sorts of other groups. It was a very interesting experience to do that book. Right. I bet because revolutions always start from the bottom up, right? They don't start right. from the big companies down. Uh, you know, we've had Team Zoe on, and of course he's the CEO uh, of Zora and author of Subscribe. And he's, I would say, one of the chief evangelists for this business model. He wrote in his book that in five years, you won't buy anything, but you'll subscribe to everything. And I actually like how you put it in your book. You say in five years, you'll have the option to subscribe to everything and every business will have to accommodate that fact. But what we see, Anne, is a lot of inertia. Why do I have to accommodate it? It's not going to affect me. How do yeah. you respond to that? Well, so here's how I respond is that you're, you're, you're thinking about it wrong. It's not, you know, does it affect you? It's affecting your customers. So the, the presence of subscription options and the presence of businesses that really know how to nurture and value and sustain that relationship, that raises the bar for everyone. In much the same way that, you know, you might say years ago, Apple raised the bar for design for tech companies, right? Once we realized that our, our computers could look really cool and slick, they didn't have to be yellowing plastic monitors with green screens. You know, once we realized that, everybody's expectations changed. The same thing is true. Even if you are not offering a subscription, anything, if you aren't treating your customers like members or you don't have relationship mindset, you're just transactional. If your competitors are going there, then it's going to change the way your customers think about what is possible and their relationship with you. So it does affect you, even if you haven't yet moved to that kind of a business model yourself, because right. it affects your, your customers. No, that's a great point. We have a saying around here that you, you we compete against any organization that has the ability to raise customer expectations. And how many of your customers are ex, you know, comparing your experience to their experience on Amazon or when they visit Disney World? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, this model, though, requires such a different mindset. I mean, we always talk about how difficult it is to unlearn, right? Sometimes unlearning is harder than learning something new. Like I think about Fender guitar. I don't know if you've run across them, but they're digital play and there's just a phenomenal success story during this COVID. They're not really selling guitars. They're selling you how to play the guitar and how yep. to play it continuously better. And that's just, it's not the same thing at all, is it? No, no, it's not. And so one of the things that Fender did, and I'm going to hat tip to Teen for this because I got this, this uh, from Zora, was when the pandemic hit and everybody's stuck at home looking for stuff to do, what did they do? They changed their Fender Play subscription from one month to three months. They took the opportunity not to build revenues, but to build relationships. Hmm. And I think that was a brilliant play. Um, I, I think, um, like you said, it's they are selling the experience. They're selling the hope, the, the personal development, the learning, being someone who plays a guitar. That's what they're selling. And they took an opportunity to invest in the relationships 
during this pandemic, as opposed to, you know, doubling down on it's like, you know, it's raining money. <laughs> so. Right, right. And, and, and just, just rather than just focusing on the transaction, I mean, I love what the Fender CEO said. He said, if I sell somebody a guitar and they try and play it and they get frustrated and it goes under their bed and then they give it away, he said, that's another sale that I don't get to make in the future. Uh, so just that whole mindset of customer success. And, and in the book, you talk about inadequacy marketing. And I love this idea, the prospect lacks something that only can be fixed with, you know, our product or this idea that we're selling solutions. It seems to me you have an issue with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> I mean, it was <laughs> traditional marketing advertising, you know, you're not thin enough, you don't smell good enough, you don't, you know, I mean, all of these things. Um, uh, <laughs> we've, we've been exposed to those kind of messages and look, you know, it hasn't gotten us to a happy place. But I think that those, those, you know, marketers who are really trying to build a relationship with you are saying, you know, what's possible? What can you do? The customer should always be the hero of the stories, not the brand, not, not your company. You know, don't tell stories where you're the hero. Tell stories where your customers are the hero. And, you know, not to bring up Apple again, but they do this brilliantly in a lot of their ad campaigns. They show someone using their iPhone to create a beautiful video for their grandmother. I mean, they show what's possible. It's not about yeah. inadequacy. It's about possibility. And, and they've done that since day one. They yep. show the one user using their product and they are the hero. Yeah, it's such a narrow mindset to think we sell solutions to problems or, or no, it's broader than that. It's possibilities and opportunities as well. Yeah, so they, even really in the B2B point. space, even in the yes. tech space, you know, especially it, it, you just have to think about it a little bit. You have to get your head out of the features and, and get into the, the user's world. You know, we talk a lot about value pricing. Ed, Ed and I are members and faculty members of the Professional Pricing Society. So we teach value pricing and value pricing 1.0 is all about pricing the customer. We talk about 2.0, which is subscription being you price the relationship. And people say, well, that's just semantics. What's the difference between the customer and the there's a big difference. Yeah. Because with Fender, you have a relationship with the customer. It's a direct relationship. They're invested in your success. Right. I, I, you know, pricing is hard, but when you, when you make that shift, you know, people say it's semantics, but it's not. It's mindset. We're either thinking about numbers or we're thinking about people. <laughs> Those are activate two really different regions of our brain. You know, they bring about a whole different set of values and behaviors. Um, and, and it's the key to, you know, getting that sort of cognitive empathy that you need to understand to, to reach your customer, to make that connection with them. You call it value nurturing. Can you explain that? Because I love that too. Yeah, thanks. So I, I tried to coin that term. So, no, that's a great so let's, term. let's just all say it a few times. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> value nurturing. Make sure you get a royalty when we say it. A royal, no, I don't want the royalty. I just want it out in the no. world. Okay. Uh, because, you know, it, it's marketers are like, you know, lead nurturing, check, you know, lead generation, check uh, this. And so I wanted to give them another thing to slot into their, into what they needed to do. And that is you're not done at the point of the conversion. Now you go to what I'm calling value nurturing, which is once somebody has subscribed, you need to continue to nurture that customer and their experience of value of being a customer. And you can use a lot of marketing techniques to do that. You know, we have a bunch of tools in our tool set that you can do this with. Um, but in fact, value nurturing belongs obviously to the entire organization. I mean, marketing makes the promise of the relationship, but the whole business delivers on that promise. Um, so it's, it's larger than marketing itself. But yeah, I tried to put an umbrella to put some of these activities in and say, these are legitimate 
marketing responsibilities. Right. So. And you talk about there's five approaches to this idea of value nurturing. And I, I love the whole, you know, content and community, just sometimes just leveraging your community of users or members can make a big difference. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think people, they, for, they, they think all the value has to be in the product or the thing they're selling. And that's not it. The, the, the value can be in the relationship. It can be in what it feels like to open an email from you. It can be in the community of customers that you've created. Absolutely. So you can right. add real value beyond, beyond the thing or the stuff you're selling. I think about Harley Davidson, you know, the, I mean, that's a way of life. It's not just a motorcycle and they get together and yeah, as the, and this is great. I know this is just flying by, but uh, I'd like to remind you folks, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out the soul of enterprise.com. We'll post full show notes with our interview with Ann and all of her books we'll link to. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Our conversation today is with Ann Jenzer, author of Subscription Marketing, Strategies for Nurturing Customers in a World of Churn. And and I wanted to ask you about a couple of quotes in the book that, that uh, I've picked out. One of them is this, quote, I've become convinced of the following truth. Organizational boundaries are the enemies of the subscriber experience. Expound on that. Expound, yeah. So organizational boundaries in a couple ways. One is you've got the missed handoff situation. You've got the sense of, you know, person A is shifted over to, oh, now you've bought, now you're really a customer success or a customer support or something. Um, 
if you think about it from your own perspective, we when you buy something, we all know that a, a, the business we're buying from is made up of, of a lot of people. And yet we kind of think of it like one brand that we're in a relationship. We think of it as a unified entity. So when something screws up in shipping, for example, and they ship us the wrong thing, if we call and they're like, oh, that was just shipping's problem, return it and we'll fix it, you know, then we're like, this is a very unhelpful organization that I'm in a relationship with. Um, if they say, oh, that was my mistake, you know, here's what we're going to do. Um, if you make it easy for them, if you just try to maintain that sense of a unified face and relationship with the customer, you will deal with them differently. Um, so organizational boundaries, you know, give us a chance when we're in an organization to say, that's not my problem. And that should never come across to because the relationship is always the organization's problem. So the the customer should never feel or sense they're getting a, that's not my problem from the organization. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the, Ron and I are tied into economics as well. Ludwig von Mises is an, uh, an economist who said that you can't, you cannot parse value, right? You can't, you can't, you can't break down the difference between the value of the experience in a restaurant of the, the, the waiter, the food or the cleanliness. I mean, if one of those things falls, we judge it all the same. So even if yep. the, the wait staff is stellar, but a cockroach runs across your meal, doesn't matter. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> so uh, uh, but, yeah. but 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 what I wanted to, to 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 just take this to the next level because it, later on in that same chapter you say in a subscription based business everyone is in marketing period really period which I loved <laughs> but what when I read that and I heard 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 that for the first time I thought what is also interesting is how some people in marketing are actually resentful of that. Yeah, there's this whole thing about owning the customer and who owns the customer when and, you know, don't. Um, now, let me say, to be fair, I have worked, you know, with clients who um, had uh, like a sales staff who decided that they were going to write out great copy letters, you know, to the to, you know, <laughs> right, I've right, seen right. some really disastrous. It's like you said, what the customer? <laughs> it's like, so, so. Um, you know, somebody has to own the voice. I mean, the voice needs to go through some things. There need, you need a consistency. You need a consistency for sure. So marketing, you know, wants to hold on to the consistency of the voice and that's legit. But um, again, I think it's not holding on. It's educating the whole organization. What is the brand? What is the voice? How do we present a unified, consistent face? And that actually means that you need to understand your story, understand your values. And those values have to be deeper than just a marketing campaign. They actually have to be, you know, throughout, they have to be part of the organization's culture. Yeah. And that, that's, that's such an important point. I, I think that the, the challenge is, of course, when I read that phrase the first time through the book, you think, oh, it's everybody in marketing. It wants that to happen, but they don't. They, they really do sometimes want to hold on to the different pieces. And it's really up to them to educate out. I think that's a great, great point. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, you mentioned Amazon Prime. And what a great success story that is, is that it offers you the uh, discounts to be able to do the subscribe and save thing. Mm -hmm. And I just want to get cur you're, you're curious on this. I think Amazon has made it too easy to order and mess themselves out of subscribe and save. I subscribed and saved to, to some things but then found myself unsubscribe and saving because it was so easy to just, I'll just order it when I need it instead. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe and the subscribe it, and save hasn't landed quite how they thought it was going to. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but the prime subscription Only because they're so stellar other in, in 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 actual doing what they're doing that's the bizarre part right <laughs> well here's the thing though amazon is always experimenting so you know as a prime subscriber you know i am always watching to say oh what what just happened oh they just sent me something asking me to review so they're trying to build in more connection you know more investment of me into the platform they're trying to build more content and value and you know so i look at what they're doing and they do some things that don't work so well but they do a lot of things that do work well and if you look when we talked about you know with ron about value nurturing and how content can be value you know they they keep adding content to the prime subscription they're like it's prime was free shipping right that's what it started about and now it's you know music, uh, delivery of groceries within two hours. It's all kinds of things. They just keep adding uh, adding to it, always, always adding value to that subscription, which is really, really interesting to watch how that happens. Yeah. And I can't believe it won't be too long before it's if, if it's if it's not just COVID tests, but also COVID vaccines. In my in my fantasy world, we have Amazon doing the distribution and and Chick-fil-A doing the actual injections. I think we'd have a much better experience overall. Uh, I saw something on Twitter. If we just put Amazon in charge of the vaccine, you know, everyone would have it there, you know, in a, in a week, except, you know, prime members would have it by Thursday. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um, apparently, uh, in fact, our our, our uh, social media person uh, Jeff uh, Greg Trico and I talked earlier. They, Jeff um, Bezos wrote a letter today that uh, has appeared about that very thing, offering Amazon up to to do better distribution of the vaccine. So we'll see how that that plays itself out. Um, yeah. And uh, this next topic, I know, is is a passion of both Ron and I, and that is you, you're talking about the common adaptation models of subscription, the trial, the segmented approach, all in approach, pivot as a marketing subscription. And uh, one of the things that you say, though, that the, the low risk strategy of dipping your toe in the water is uh, inherently a lack of commitment may doom the trial to failure. I, I, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a critical point for people to understand who are trying to transition, that you can't be a little bit into subscription. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it, it comes because um, this whole switching to a subscription model requires a mindset switch from transactional sales to relationships. And I know that you've talked about this at length with, with Teen, mm -hmm. uh, too, with, with Robbie Baxter, you know, um, it's so if you're just going to say, well, we're going to just offer one subscription variant of this thing and see if people buy it, but we're going to stay wholly invested in our transactional model, eh, you're probably not going to do a very good job of offering that one. You know, you, it's, it's hard to say. So it's, you know, if you want to try it out, it might be better to try it with something that's entirely new and different or addressing an entirely different market or something so that you have a bit of a clean slate to build new practices around. Um, but, you know, if you have, let's say you have a, a whole marketing department that is incentivized on net new leads generated, and then, you know, what are they going to do with a, a subscription or, you know, Salesforce or Salesforce on initial revenues, they're going to sell the standalone product because there's a much higher price ticket to that than there is to a subscription initially. Yeah, there's always, and this goes back to Peter Drucker, right? This inherent tension between sales and marketing in that, you know, and in so many com companies as well, if marketing would just do their job, well, if sales would just do their job, right, in this back and forth. And I think part of it stems from something that was a problem in, uh, I think, well, at least for me, emerged out of the 80s, 90s, and marketing's belief is that they, they, were, they were there to just provide leads, 
right? And they even, in fact, compensation systems built totally on just delivering leads, regardless of how crappy they were, it didn't matter. And I think subscription just really uh, completely jettisons, or it has to really has to completely jettison that idea. So expand on that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because when I first published the book, I had somebody, a company I'm not going to name, but big company that you would think was based on subscriptions. And they, they said, and this is all great and I want to do it, but I am incentivized on my net new leads generated. It's like, okay, well, that, you know, there you go. I mean, people are going to do what you incentivize them to. Um, it's, you know, I think when you adopt a subscription market, uh, a subscription model, you have to start questioning uh normal assumptions and received wisdom um, and that like for example all customer growth is good it is not if you're attracting the wrong customers growth in a subscription model can actually take value away from your business the wrong customers will reduce the value of your business and that's because um, if they're not customers who are going to stay and the cost of acquisition was too high you can lose money with each customer you sign and then you become like that person selling you know, the thing at a loss saying, yeah, I lose 10 bucks in a unit, but I'll make it up on volume. You know, it just doesn't work. <laughs> um, so not all customers are the same. Not all growth is right. You're much better building to the right people, finding the right people who are going to find the most value from what you're offering that you're going to have the strongest relationship with and build out from that than to just chase as many new leads as you can. You know, it was interesting as reading through your book, a, a concept flew into my mind, which was how poorly some companies who were subscription based performed early on in this subscription marketing world. I'm thinking specifically of cable and and <laughs> cell phone companies, right? These were these are companies that had the model. Yep but just then performed completely poorly and I, I, to the, are still recovering in, in my view. So thoughts on that. Why did that happen? What, what, where, where did they get lost? They had it. It was right before. They, they had the billing and delivery model, but they never had the mindset. They never had mm. the mindset. And that's really what it came to. They, and, and often they were in, you know, they originated in monopolistic or semi-monopolistic markets as well. So they didn't feel like they had to invest in their relationships. They were the game. People were coming to them, you know, and that that changed. Um, it's not the case anymore, but, you know, there are some basic rules of relationship, like making it easy for someone to leave, you know, and, and things like that, that has taken them a long time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, there are, they're all the, 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 and, and here's the other thing we talked about how, you know, really good subscription businesses raise the bar for everyone. The ones that are, um, not really good, uh, actually erode trust for everyone. So your new prospective customers are less likely to trust subscribing to you if they have had a really horrible time trying to unsubscribe from their cable television. <laughs> yeah, one of my jokes is I'm pretty sure I'm still subscribed to Columbia House Records. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that somewhere I have, have combed through all of my credit card statements, but they're they're getting money from me somewhere. <laughs> But anyway, this is this is great, Anne. Thank you so much. Want to remind our audience that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the show notes as well as the previews to upcoming shows are available on The Soul of Enterprise. And don't forget our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can get the full show without commercial interruption, as well as our bonus episodes. Our, our, the Patreon site is sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? 
Hire90Minds at 90minds.com. And right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Ann Danzer and her book, Subscription Marketing. Folks, highly recommend it. Ed and I both loved it. And if you do run out to Amazon and get it, make sure you get the latest edition, which is the third edition. And Ann, you were talking to Ed a little bit about your adoption models, the trial, the segmented approach, and the all-in pivot. And I just wanted to get your take. You know, there's news reports in the last week or so that BMW, Audi, and Mercedes all have given up on their subscription trial, right? Now, BMW might bring theirs back. Audi, we don't know. Mercedes, yeah, they'll probably bring it back at some point. What do you think they failed? I have strong opinions about it, but I'd love to hear what you think. I'd love to know what your insights on this, frankly. I mean, I think it's a it's a tough nut to crack, but if you look at something like BMW, they have a or any, any car manufacturer like that, they had this enormous weight of existing dealerships, practices, uh, things. So for them, a subscription isn't, you know, they have to figure out what it, what's their promise? What is it that they're offering? Is it a car? You know, I, I think they have to think outside their usual markets. They have to think outside their usual story. They have to really question everything. And that can be, you know, really tough to do when you have this enormous entrenched network of businesses depending on you that are pulling you towards that one your existing transactional revenue model yeah the legacy systems with the dealer networks are definitely an issue but and you probably know this as well uh, i learned this from team but porsche drive has been expanding they're in six cities now and 80 percent of the people that have signed up for that are new to the brand they're flourishing with it they're no, in my mind, they're no different that much from BMW. That's also another 
fantastic brand. They're the two most profitable car companies in the world. I think BMW just can't get out of the mindset that they're selling cars and Porsche says, no, no, you're subscribing to Porsche. You have a direct relationship with us. That's it. It's the relationship. They're, they're, yeah, bingo. You put your, your finger right on it. And it's, you know, that just is a great example of, you know, it's hard to get it right. It's not just a simple, you know, <laughs> switch, switch your billing model. It's certainly not just that. Um, when you, when you switch that, a lot of things change and it's hard to do. But yeah, I think the interesting thing you pointed out was that Porsche is reaching an entirely different or mostly different market with this service. So that's fascinating. It, it is because, I mean, they're obviously their regular customers are, you know, they're getting older, they're dying off and they're going after a younger demographic, which is probably going to really be helpful in the future. I'm glad, I'm so glad I asked you this during the break about uh, direct primary care and concierge because you said you have a DPC doctor now. Um, and when I look at those practices and I've done a deep dive on them and I realized that a house can't stand if it's divided you can't be a dpc practice and still have fee for service and take insurance you've got to be one or the other it's kind of like the problems bmw is having how, how do you advise especially smaller firms that you you can't like ed said you can't be half pregnant with this you're either all in or don't do it yeah um you know it's i, I think they have to recognize the extent of the journey if you're making a transition um yeah, I, I am, you know, I have subscribed to a DPC and why? Because I want that relationship. It's, it's, it's about knowing that there's one person I'm going to call. And even if, you know, she sends me off to do lab work or things that are going to then go on to my insurance, that's, I want someone who knows who to send me. I mean, I am subscribing to that relationship. It's not to services, it's not to appointments and visits, it's to having that relationship. Um, uh, so how do you, how do you do this? I mean, I've talked to, I, I interviewed, uh, uh, Rallis Fontenot in my my book, who changed, went had a business that was doing um, staff placement, executive placement services, mm -hmm. which is always fee per placement, and he decided to make a transition to doing it as a subscription, which was, you know, completely new in his in his uh, industry, and he did take, you know, he had a transition period where he started offering it to clients. Um, and they didn't all kind of go with him. So he made it about a year, year and a half transition because of course, you know, he had revenue things to figure out. And, um, uh, but I think it, it turned out to being enormously successful because it changed the nature of his relationship with his customers. Um, with a traditional fee for service, he's actually kind of uh, in competition. If he makes the placement, they pay him a fee if his company, and if the company is able to fill it on their own, they don't have to pay the headhunter fee, right? So here you had a relationship where you were not aligned. Um, you know, you're actually almost in competition. Putting it in the subscription, it was just, you know, however many jobs you fill them, I fill them, this is just what you were paying per month. And it took him a while to figure that out. But the key is you have to look at incentivizing or creating the the uh, offering such that you both are incentivized towards the same thing. You're both shooting for the customer's success um, and you both succeed when that happens. One of the things that impresses me about the DPC movement is that, you know, they're, they're saying that this is why I became a doctor in the first place to help people. And the typical general practitioner has got 3000 patients 
you know, which is why you can spend seven minutes with them when you have an appointment. And now because they reduce their panel of patients, like you were saying, not all growth is good growth. Um, they might have 600 patients, but now it's not just about treating you when you're sick, it's keeping you healthy. And they have the capacity to do that. And that's just, to me, that model just makes so much more sense. Right. I mean, I don't want to go in and use up as many services as I can. I want to be, that's not, that's like the last thing you want, right? I want to be healthy, but I also know that I can, I can call her and ask her and say, you know, should I be paying attention to this thing? Um, uh, so I think you're right. We are both, we are both aligned to my health. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of talk and work over the years to try to realign healthcare. So the outcomes, you know, payments are based on outcomes as opposed to just uh, how many services you render and all of that. Um, we need to shift that relationship in healthcare absolutely as well to align us to the same things, which we all want. I mean, as you said, that's why people go into healthcare. Yeah. 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 No, it's really fascinating. Those doctors have uh, less, their, their patients have less ER visits, less hospitalizations. They even take less drugs which even the pharmaceutical companies are noticing. So I, I it's just it, like you say, it aligns the incentives, which yeah. is great. Um, Greg actually asked this question and I thought it was a really good one. So I'm going to ask you his question. He said the number one question he gets uh, is uh, that he's never had an, an answer for is what if someone signs up and then leaves in 30 days with all their stuff? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, people do churn. People leave in 30 days and there's some some research about you've got, you know, 90 days. If someone's not happily using it in 90 days, you're gone. Um, uh, if, if you're, you know, you may lose money on that customer, right? Um, that's why you want to be careful about finding those customers to whom you are going to have the most value. Um, it, interesting thing early on the, in this pandemic when Disney... Uh, got the rights to Hamilton for Disney Plus and they launched Disney Plus with Hamilton. I subscribed to watch Hamilton for seven bucks a month. I mean, I, I did. And then I unsubscribed shortly after because I, well, I watched The Mandalorian first and then I unsubscribed right. because it's generally, I'm not the sweet spot customer for Disney. My children are grown. I, you know, I'm not into the Avengers universe, all of that. Um, uh, so, you know, there's always that risk. I think it's still probably paid off for Disney. I think even with a high churn for people like me, sorry, sorry, Disney, high churn, they still probably gained a lot more subscribers than they would have. So this is always something you balance, um, but you can't approach it trying to, uh, yeah. You know, if you approach it focused on how many good long lasting relationships can I build rather than stuff, I think you'll, you'll have a better, uh, better success. One, one of the biggest challenges, and, and frankly, I, Ed and I have been working on, out on this and we're still wrestling with it, is when you convert a, a CPA firm or a law firm that does litigation or an IT firm that does massive software installation, they have these one-off projects that are really, really expensive and loaded up front with a lot of work. Are, are you okay with carving out separate prices for large projects and not having those on subscription, but then the ongoing relationship on a subscription? Yeah. So this is a tricky question. I mean, like, I know that, that Robbie might question me on that if I say yes. Um, uh, but I think, you know, there are the nature of certain products, projects are one time, right? I mean, it's just the nature of it. Um, 
Uh, I work with some authors on their books. Once they're done with their book, they don't need me. I mean, that's right. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. the nature right. of it. So some things simply don't make. And that's why I, I, you know, early on in the show, we talked about teens quote about five years, you're going to subscribe to everything. It's like some things are not worth subscribing to. That's not what how they're going to work. Um, uh, so I think that that sometimes you you do have to do that. Um, but I would make, you know, I would try to build the business around the relationships and the subscription relationships, and then have these other things uh, on the side, uh, like, you know, as needed. Um, but make sure you pay attention to, you have to decide which is the foundation for your business, the big one-off projects or the relationships and the subscription. Right, right. And, and if those one-off projects come up all the time, then my attitude is you can just bake it in. I, I, we're really hard on ourselves on this because we don't think we're, we're thinking far enough outside the box. We're still thinking we're selling guitars. Yeah. We're not thinking like, no, we're helping you play better. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy. You know what? It's, it's easier to look and see this in someone else's business than in your own. <laughs> which is right. True right. of everything. Right. That's very um, which true. Is, but it's why it's really good to look at other industries and, and riff at them and look at Fender and say, oh, you know, maybe some of this does apply. I think we need to really carefully look across industries, not at what everyone in our industry is doing, but what all sorts of places are doing to start to be able to question some of those assumptions within our own businesses. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I look at uh, just like you say in the book, you know, even marketing powerhouses like Procter and Gamble and Coca-Cola are confronted with these direct to consumer brands like Worley yeah. Parker and Casper and, you know, Harry's razors. Didn't, didn't Unilever buy Harry's razors for like a billion uh, they, dollars? They bought something? Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club. Yeah, that's billion right. Billion oh, dollars. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Dollar Shave yeah. Club. Um how do you how do you recommend that firms overcome subscription fatigue? This is another pushback we get. Yeah, um, I think subscription comes fatigue uh, comes in part from the people just simply productizing everything as a subscription. Um, something that I've seen that nearly killed me when I, I've seen people you buy this in the next two months because after that it's going to be a subscription. It's going to cost you a lot more. It's like, oh, the subscription is the, the you know, the, the stick. Yeah, it's like the carrot, the right. stick, it's the stick. That's not good. You've got the wrong mindset about this. Um, so I think, uh, you know, if you're just like, well, I'm going to change my pricing model and I'm going to get everything on subscriptions. Yeah, people are going to be tired of it. Um, but if you give them an opportunity to have a meaningful lasting relationship with your business in a way that benefits them, they won't get fatigued with that. Yeah, it, it comes back to that relationship. And the other thing is the innovation, like you said before about Prime, the innovation's baked into this model, yeah. which I just love about it. I mean, you continuously add capacity, but it doesn't change your price necessarily. Right, right. And, uh, and the closer you are to customers, the better you can innovate. You know, and we could talk about this, but, you know, I think that those businesses that have been able to shift best and adapt best to the pandemic were those that had really strong relationships with their customers. So they had some leeway to make a pivot and to change. Right. Well, Ann, this has been great. And unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, if you want to get contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Go out to ratethispodcast.com and give us a rating. We'll read it on the air. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking subscription marketing with Ann Jenzer, the woman who literally wrote the book on that subject. That's so. Uh, and I wanted to pick up on another sentence that jumped out at me. And at first I had a negative reaction to it. But then over time, I've, I've become a little bit more accustomed to what it is that you were trying to, maybe because I read further in the book. But you, you say, um, upselling and cross-selling, these are important results of successful value nurturing. And here's the, the thing I object to do. But never mistake selling for creating value. Why should we never mistake selling for creating value? Well, I think uh, yeah, this comes from my marketing lens, right? Which is, you know, people would used to hire me to create content, create content, create content. And they wanted that content to be selling. It's like that's, that's, that's not the same. That's not the same thing as giving people uh, value. And what happens is... If you create wonderful content that people find useful, they are going to want to buy from you without your having that content showing up saying, you know, buy our software. It's awesome. This is a hero, you know. Um, so that is what I was trying to get at was that don't mistake, you know, don't mistake all of that. Restrain yourself from selling your product all the time and try to create value, try to gener generously give value because that does create value back in your business by creating these valuable relationships. And those relationships then become the basis of upselling and cross-selling, which is how you let off that question. Yeah, I, I, my, my, my objection was, was based on my priors, right? Which is a, this notion that, that to me, s sales is about the, what we call the value conversation, right? It is, it is about having that conversation with a prospect. Uh, keep in mind, we sell large systems to account, accountants and also people who need accounting solutions, which is, by the way, one of the few areas that is extraordinarily 
sticky and switching costs, even in subscription, are astronomical because nobody wants to change their accounting system. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So it's one of the few exceptions to your rule. But um, so I, th- I think that that was that was my reaction to it. But I think you're you're important. You make a very important distinction there because I think that so f- many people think that oh, if I just tell them what the features are, they will m- miraculously say, oh, I get it now. And yep. that's just not the case. Yep. And we <laughs> fall in love with our creations, too. It's like, look at these features. You know, it's not always out of a sense of, you know, greed. We're just so excited about this thing we've created um, yeah. that we want everyone to look at it. Um, I want to quickly explore something. And I have to set this one up. But but Ron and I do an exercise that we call the value gap. And you write eloquently about economic value. And one of the, the the suggestions that we suggest people do is look at their relationship with a with a current customer, and ask themselves how much value have they actually created for that customer, hmm. and then think how much value can I create for them in the future, and that exercise to me has really come home with the the notion of, of subscription because of what Ron was talking about, the continuous need to innovate. So this idea of what what can we do for current customers to create value in them tomorrow? Right, so right. Explore that a little bit with me. Well I like to think of, you know, a little set of scales, right? And and so when someone signs up they're looking at, you know, what's the value on one one scale and, you know, how much am I paying on the others? And it's gotta mm-hmm. make sense for them to subscribe. And then, you know, except for in exceptionally sticky situations like yours, yeah. every time a, a renewal comes up, they're making a similar kind of assessment. But here's the thing. The reasons people subscribe are sometimes different than the reasons they renew. Um, and that, I think, is something that companies lose sight of as well. Um, they may have liked the software, but geez, the, the support was terrible and they don't really feel like they can trust. I mean. Trust. We haven't mentioned trust yet, but I think it is so fundamental to the subscription market. Um, if you have somehow lost the customer's trust by not dealing well with something, um, it doesn't matter how great they think the features are. Something has changed. Um, on the other hand, if you have delighted them by writing highly entertaining emails to tell them that their product just shipped or something, you know, you've added something that you don't think of as part of the product into the value scale that mm-hmm. the, that they're going to look at. Um, and at a certain point, it's just a, a no-brainer, of course, you know, that's so tipped towards value from what they perceive um, that they are, of course, going to renew. And those things that are adding to that value may not always be more features and more stuff. They can be things outside, like, you know, you've connected them with a community of people who do the same thing, and that's made their lives richer, or their careers more interesting. I mean, that's value that can be outside of the product as well. Yeah, the the great example from your book is, is that I love is the is the Mailchimp hang ten when you when you successfully launch your campaign. Yeah, you know, which it it, just, it makes me happy when I when it happens. It- right, and you feel like and before you launch, there's a shaking finger pointing down on the button. It's like they get me, they understand that I'm feeling anxiety about sending that email. Yeah, yeah. so it's little things like that. You know, does that make the email delivery any better? No, but it affects your your experience as a as a customer. And if they took it away, I would miss it, right? If they, 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 if they took that piece away. And I wanted to, to get to, to, to this 
this piece too, but I, I love your your conversations about the launch plan. And by the way, folks, you have to buy this book because it is chock full of really not only the great theory, which Ron and I love, but the practical little tips that, that, that you can do to make this really, really work. So that's one of the reasons why we love this is there's a great balance. But um, the, the launch plan and all that, but what I'm finding, I, I don't know if you're finding this, and you probably are overcritical of this as well, but these email campaigns to get you to use, I'm like, stop. Please, like like they're all the same now so we have that people have to innovate around around them now don't they yeah yeah they do indeed i mean i think you need to have some kind of opt-in technique to or something for it because uh they can get relentless it's like no go away <laughs> please please shut up I, I, if you i will continue to subscribe as long as you leave me alone for yeah a little bit. <laughs> Right. Let me do my thing. <laughs> they should have an option for just send me one email with all of everything I need and I'll get to it when I get to it. And that would be, I would like half the time I'd be like, yes, send me that email and I will save it with an icon in my mail folder. That's great. It's like the Brazilian steakhouse with the green and red card, you know, that you flip over when you want to bring it or not. <laughs> um so the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the, the, what, what you call the 90-10 rule, right, that applies to, for new subscribers. If a customer doesn't start using your solution within 90 days, there's only a 10% chance that they'll become a loyal customer. Is that still true? Is that something that continues to bear itself out in your, in your latest work? I, you know, so this was a stat I got a while ago, and I think service stores. So they were got it, and they were uh, working in large tech companies, corporate America, things like that. Um, so I don't know that I could... I haven't done a large statistical survey, okay. but I'm going to, my gut feeling is it's probably right. Cause you know, honestly, if I sign up for something and I don't start using it within 90 days, I kind of forget that I, that I signed up for it. So I think gut feeling, yeah, I think you have to pay attention to that first 90 days um, because that is when people have made the decision. They've made a decision to subscribe. Um, and now they're looking for, you know, confirmation bias. They're looking for confirmation that the decision was the right one. And you want to be able to provide that confirmation early on before they forget what the whole reason was they signed up. Which leads me to a question that we talked with uh, Ra Robbie Kelman Baxter about as well. And you do mention this a little bit in your book, so I'm curious. And Teenso is, is con absolutely convinced that uh, freemium is dead. Long live the free trial. Uh, Robbie says he's a provocateur. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's what he yes. has to say. So, exactly. uh, what 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 are your thoughts on freemium versus free free trial? Has that come? Has there been any clarity from your perspective on that more recently? Um, you know, if if freemium is dead, uh, I don't know what you're going to say to Zoom right now, right? Um, <laughs> so, um, because they've been offering some free, you know, right. So I, I think, I think that Robbie's right, that the team will say, you know, you're going to subscribe to everything or premium said, because he wants to engage these conversations. Um, and that's, that's what he does. Um, I think freemium makes an awful lot of sense when you can use it to, um, create value by building a larger community, for example, um, when you can use it to build relationships or when you can use it to, uh, you know, be generous. I don't know. I think it makes a lot of sense. You have to use it carefully, obviously, because the last thing you want to do is take away value. Say, okay, it's been freemium, but we can't afford to do this anymore. So right. now we're going to take away these three things. Ah, you know, now Absolutely. you've just created a relationship that is just toxic. It's not good. So be really careful what you offer freemium. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. That's a great answer, too. And uh, this has been a terrific conversation. Absolutely. Hour flew by. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? 
Next week, Ed, we have Virginia Postrel, the author of The Fabric of Civilization. Can't wait. That's going to be great. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes, our interview with Ann today. Also, you can contact Ed or me. Send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on